0: Good evening everyone. This is our last night. This is our last night in in the form of this community that we've really created over these last number of days. And what a sweet community, don't you think? It's been really wonderful. So, first of all, thank you for your practice and your diligence. And uh, your desire to do this practice. And w- what comes with this being our last night, of course, is tomorrow. <laughs> and tomorrow, in case you didn't see on the schedule, the retreat ends. <laughs> in, in many ways of seeing it also, that's when the real treat bega- retreat begins. The, 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 of, of bringing this practice... Into our daily lives, and I want to acknowledge there are a few people that are, uh, a few people that will be staying on here to do the next retreat, and and a, a few people that are going on to other places to do retreat. So, my hope is that some of the the, the things that are in this talk will, will also help inform um, your next retreat for those few people. But I, I want to begin by naming a dilemma that some of you might have experienced when going on retreat or after after going, getting off a retreat. And that's the experience of, uh, you go on a retreat, sometimes you get inspired, excited, excited, there's a quality that your practice has deepened, and then you go back home with these wonderful intentions, and then, <laughs> and then. <laughs> have you noticed that, where... where uh, it seems to, to drizzle out in a way. So I want to speak about some things that might be helpful in terms of really integrating this practice into your life, of really um, incorporating it, of carrying the practice forward, this, the, carrying your spiritual path forward. And I'd like to begin with a story. In the 1960s, there was a biologist who was very passionate about his work, and one day he he comes home and he tells his wife that he'd like to go for a vacation to Thailand, and they've been married a long time, and the wife knows her husband quite well, so is a bit leery, because her husband never wants to take a vacation. He loves his work, but she thinks, well, let's see what happens. So they they travel over to Thailand and they they get a hotel and they're alongside this, this river situated in the jungle and one evening they go out and there's just a ton of fireflies all over the place. And the husband has this jar or a few jars where he catches a whole bunch of the fireflies. And they go back to their hotel, turn out the lights. Kind of romantic, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> and... And they let go of all the fireflies in the room. And, and what they see is really quite fascinating. So at first, all of the fireflies, you know, are doing their thing. They're just kind of doing the firefly thing. And then they notice in certain parts of the room, uh, the fireflies start to synchronize with one another and they start to shine and turn off at the same time. And then that happens over at another part of the room where eventually they synchronize to the point where the entire room is synchronized at the same time. It's just a fascinating experience. Synchronicity. We find this in all forms, um, in all different kinds of forms within, within the world that we live in not only in living organisms, but if you really consider it, our universe works in a synchronistic way. There's a synchronicity in, in the way that the Earth moves around the sun and the way the the sun travels um, through even this galaxy. And I, I feel that, that uh, it can be really wonderful to have the sense that In some ways, what we're trying to do is we're trying to synchronize ourselves with our spiritual path and then to allow that to fold or really unfold in a much broader level that really goes out beyond just me. So how do we get a sense of this and how do we uh, begin to sync ourselves with our spiritual path? and then allowing that to, to, to expand beyond beyond our own lives. There's another image that we find actually in, in Mahayana Buddhism, very popular in, in, in Chinese Buddhism. And it's the image that many of you might be familiar with, which is the image of Indra's net, which really has this quality of, of synchronicity. synchronicity. And it's the, the image of this net that ex, expands outwards infinitely in all directions. And at each node of the net there is a jewel. And if you were to look into one of those jewels at, at any node, you would see all of the other jewels reflected just within that one jewel. So this interconnectedness, this inner being quality. I, I find this so important for my spiritual path because it, it does help me, you know, what we've been talking about on this on this retreat is going beyond the sense of self. Do you, hear, do, you, do you get a feeling for how that image or this quality of synchronicity gives us a sense of going beyond our limited sense of self? That's why I feel this, uh, this Mahayana Buddhist aspiration, Mahayana Buddhism being a, a, kind of you could say a later form of Buddhism aspiration to save all beings makes sense. How could you practice and not have that intention? If there really is this quality of Indra's net, it's inevitable. There's no way around it. There's no way to practice in isolation. It just doesn't happen that way. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, this quality um in these three different realms, I just made up these three different realms just as uh, for organization's sake um, to get a sense of, of allowing our practice to unfold after the retreat. And so it's, I want to talk about kind of the personal realm and then the interpersonal realm and then also bringing our spiritual path into what I'd call the the social and collectives, a little bit of what we spoke about last night as, uh, during the Q&A as well. And all I want to do is I just want to share with you stories and pointers of things that might be helpful for carrying your practice forward after this retreat or integrating your practice into your life. Again, another story. There might be a lot of stories tonight. The... Actually, this this image of Indra's net comes from a specific um, sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, a Mahayana Sutra. And the last chapter of the Avatamsaka Sutra is the story. It's a story about um, a practitioner by the name of Sudhana. And Sudhana, I want you to imagine while I'm uh, sharing the story, Sudhana can be seen as a he or a she, because Sudhana is really us traveling our spiritual journey. And it's simply a description of that. And her name, Sudana, literally means child of wealth or child of riches, which I find so striking. And I want to point out, in many ways, that's where our, our practice needs to begin, is to get a sense that you're a child of many riches, a child of wealth. Do you hear the importance of, of of the depth of of kindness that we need towards ourself in order to move forward, or even to begin the spiritual path? <coughs> Can you see that you're a child of wealth, and that a lot of this practice is simply realizing that? So, uh, Sudhana begins her her journey, and. Uh, it's a fascinating journey because along along the journey he meets 53 different teachers along his path in such a huge variety it's, it's a, the, the, the variety is, is is quite fascinating and I should back up the, the, the I don't know if you've ever read some Mahayana texts, but the the way this is described is is incredibly, it's, it's incredibly fantastical and in the and the language is very complex and ornate. There's a magical and miraculous quality to it. The The sentences are incredibly long. Definitely puts William Faulkner to shame. It's just <laughs> it's unbelievable. So she goes from teacher to teacher learning some aspect about the path. And the variety of teachers is, is quite fascinating. So I said 53, and over half of them are women. He meets gods and goddesses and bodhisattvas, Monks and nuns, teacher, beggars, kings, laborers. He even is taught by a courtesan, Vasumitra, who teaches him through a kiss and an embrace. And such a huge variety of means to learn the path through speech, something that we just did, or it could be even through scent or through food. Or things that we might be more familiar with, like generosity, but also through beauty and difficulty. And at the end of, uh, towards the end of his path, he um, the, the first teacher he meets is, is Manjushri. And Manjushri asks Sudhana at the end, he asks her, "What have you found on your path that was not your medicine?" Of course, the medicine being that was not your medicine that leads to liberation. And Sudhana replies and she says, Nothing. Everything she comes across is teaching her, everything that she comes across on her path is leading her towards liberation. I want to encourage you to to see if you can figure out how to cultivate that same quality within your own life. Can you get a sense that whatever you meet, whatever you come across within your experience is actually teaching you, is actually helping you move towards awakening, as long as there's a skillful relationship to it. What a profound world to begin to walk in, a world that's leading us towards awakening. And as Eric and I have been uh, speaking about again and again and again, this is all situated upon about not what you experience but how you experience it. What can you bring to every moment of your life as you as you enter back into your daily life? Can you bring this quality of awareness and acceptance? To to get this understanding that Sudhana had on her pilgrimage? I find this so helpful, for example, just around difficulty. If I can simply remember when I'm having a difficulty that, oh, this is my spiritual path. This is, this is trying to wake me up in some way. Can I take it like that? Can I, can I have that turn of attitude or approach towards it? And just that makes a huge difference. And some of you might have tried that. Have you ever noticed the difference that comes when you can have that quality of mind to a difficulty that arises? And it takes practice. It's something that we have to go back to again and again and again. Denise Levertov has a, a, a I, f- I feel, a beautiful poem that's in relationship to this. The title of the poem is Benediction. Maybe just start with that word. I, th- I think all of you know. Uh, benediction, it's a, you could say it's an invocation for a blessing. Or it's, it's, uh, it's asking for a blessing. So, may this come about. It's one way of understanding a benediction is is that phrase. So, this is her poem, uh, Benediction. She begins, Marvelous truth. Confront us at every turn in every guise. Iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, clad of breath on the air. Dwell, dwell, in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets. (laughs) Thrust close your smile that we know you. Terrible joy. (laughs) Do you hear what she's praying for? Can, can we pray for such a thing to have, uh, and, and I, I love this first phrase, marvelous truth, to have the marvelous truth <laughs> of the way things are to confront us at every turn. And I love some of the places where, where she's asking for this to show up, in our crowded hearts. I think so many times we're so desperate for an open heart that we might not see that it's in our crowded hearts also that we can begin to see Reality. Or the steaming bathrooms or the kitchens full of things to be done and the ordinary streets can we stop looking for the extraordinary and seeing this practice in the ordinary and to have it thro- thrust close I, i'm sorry i just really love this phrase to have it have truth thrust close your smile that we know you may you reveal yourself in this moment And also what I find so important is, is the ending of this terrible joy. Have you noticed that we have these minds and so often what we want, even when we do this practice or when we come and confront, want the marvelous truths to confront us is that all we want is joy. But in some ways that's only half the picture. There's the terrible quality. There's both the pleasant and unpleasant. It's the world we live in. And this practice isn't about trying to make the unpleasant become pleasant so we only live in in a pleasant world. Because the fact of the matter, it doesn't work that way. But can we come to see the way things are, whether they be pleasant or unpleasant, and to come to terms with that, to see it and to be with it? So I leave you that question: How do you make everything your practice? How do you how do you put forth that prayer so that the marvelous truth can confront you at every turn? What will help remind you of that day after day? I want to uh, go over some specific things that that might help, well, they might not. One, of course, is some kind of regular sitting meditation practice and, and some things to keep in mind. I, I find it so important, and it's, I think it's good to reevaluate this when we, uh, when we get off retreat to get, have a different feeling, uh, to, to come newly to our sitting meditation practice. And I, I feel what's a, a question that's important to ask is, for your meditation practice, for how long you do it and how often, what fits within your lifestyle? Rather than having some fixed idea of what it, quote-unquote, should be. There's something very unorganic, or, yeah, that's not organic at all, when we or just trying to follow some fixed pattern of, of, of how it should be. And what fits for you in particular? That could be once a week. That could be every day for an hour or two, two hours. There's a huge range. So that we're not just simply crowding our lives up with yet another thing to do that's not very helpful when we go in that direction. Of course, having a quality of presence throughout the day can can be really helpful as well. The other thing that I find so helpful to remember is that daily meditation or or meditation practice in our daily lives is not going to feel like meditation on retreat. And so often, people will come to me with, that's their problem. They get off retreat and they begin to sit and then, and then they have this dilemma because their meditation isn't feeling like it was when they're on retreat, and then they feel like there's some problem going on. Actually, they're just two different creatures. That's all it is. And, and can we uh, come to terms with that, just to see that they're two different creatures? So one quote around the, the vast importance of finding... A daily meditation practice, or I'm sorry, not a daily meditation practice, but a regular meditation practice that fits into our lives. So that's organic rather than a should. And I would like to share with you a a quote by Thomas Merton that I think uh, speaks to the importance of being skillful while doing this. He says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns To surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Mm -hmm. Frenzy destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. Do you hear what he's saying? When you crowd your life with all of those things you should be doing, it's actually an act of violence, a violence towards oneself. This practice, the spiritual path, rests actually on non-harming. Can you make sure that you're not harming yourself by just adding one more thing to do? And of course, as Eric was mentioning this morning, this path isn't only about meditation. So many other things that the Buddha invited us to cultivate. A, a lot of those things would come under the, the realm of ethics, which are so important. Peter Hershock, who's a Zen scholar, Um, writes about how when Buddhism came to to China, wisdom and knowledge actually were more equated with how one conducted oneself rather than it just being upon what one has realized. And the way he he formulated this is he says says that it's not enough to see what Buddha nature is. You have to see what Buddha nature does. Can you get a quality of... uh, can, Can you cultivate this sense of carrying forward the practice in terms of your actions as well, in terms of your conduct, not just what you're seeing in your meditation or some groovy experience in your meditation, but how do you carry that forward into action? So many different realms, the practice of generosity, like we just practice mindful speech, acts of kindness. Really, when it comes down to it, there's nothing that lies outside of your pra- of your spiritual path you can see the dharma as including even diet and exercise community which i'll get to study reflection can you allow your spiritual path to become your life in that way <clears throat> A few days ago, I can't remember when, I, I, I think I was sharing with you the one way of understanding faith, and faith being this quality of falling in love, with falling in love with the practice. And how, I think we were also speaking during some of the question and answer periods, how that can be such a deep source of, of refuge. And I, I feel like it's important to revisit this for our daily practice as well, in our daily lives. And I think this begins by first getting clear about what to fall in love with. Of course, you could say, oh, I'm in love with the dharma. But what does that mean for your life in particular? And in many ways, to continue a, a, a regular practice within our daily lives, we need, to, we need to contact this passion and this falling in love quality so that it, it can endure the ups and downs that we find in daily life. As Antoine de saint Exupery said, said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn of the vast and endless sea. That's where you need to begin. Can you contact your own spiritual yearning? It was fascinating, in Flagstaff we did a whole weekend retreat just around this, basically around the question of what's important to you. This is what needs to fuel your practice, because then it will continue. The, the example I give is, a few years ago I decided to uh, try to learn Spanish, for, it must have been the 15th time, <laughs> it lasted about a month, two months. Why was that? Because the passion wasn't in place for it. When I'm passionate about something, it no longer has to feel like a discipline. My heart's in it. So I want to take just um, actually a few minutes here for us to do a reflective practice together, of of kind of going inside and reflecting on this. So I want to invite you right now just to um, get in a, a somewhat meditative posture and begin to bring your awareness inside, to your breath. And I invite you to imagine that you're at some place, maybe at the top of a mountain, where you have this vast field of vision. You can see quite far. Yet within this scheme that I'm going to invite you to see, with this vast field of vision, what I'd like you to be looking at is is back at your life. See... imagining that you're actually at the end of your life and you're now looking back over the entirety of your life with this broad view. So not so many particulars, but this broad view of looking back at your life. And as you see that and as you get a feeling sense for it, I invite you to ask yourself the question, what's the most important thing to you? What is most important to you? Notice what comes, notice how it resonates in your body. And then asking the question, how do you weave this practice of being present, this practice of awareness and acceptance, into what's most important to you? And now beginning to let go of that and when it feels right, allowing your awareness to come more outward. Doing such a reflection may help you get in touch with what you need to really fall in love with. Of course, what we've been speaking about is falling in love with the Dharma, and, and however that relates to your spiritual practice. And I, I want to uh, give an example of this falling in love, too, um, not, not an example, but a description of an aspect of falling in love which I think is very important. And I, I feel like it's very important in terms of our spiritual path. So the end of this poem, of course, is going to be about a couple, but I want you to hear it in terms of, of this, this connection that you have with your own spiritual path. And it's a poem by Jane Hirschfield, and, and the title of it is, For What Binds Us? Basically, because I, I, what I want to propose is, this is the kind of relationship that, that might be helpful to cultivate for your spiritual path. She begins, there are names for what bind us, strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them. The skin that forms in a half-empty cup. Nails rusting into the places they join. Joints dovetailed on their own weight. The way things stay so solidly wherever they've been set down. And gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence, more strong than the simple untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised. Proud flesh. As all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle small triumphs pinned to the chests, And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. So the love between two people or the love that we have for a spiritual practice. Quite striking. Like, like a scar between two bodies. And, and she goes into the detail of that. When you think of a scar, the, the flesh is torn away, but then it, it it grows over the wound and it's even stronger. Do you notice how that can happen within our spiritual practice just as a scar heals this practice can really have this depth of healing of awakening that can have that strength that that strong force that binds us and she says a, a strong force that, that so strong that nothing can tear it or mend it that single fabric For me, the, the connection that I have with my spiritual path or with the Dharma often can feel like that. I'm bound by it. You might want to reflect, a lot of the flavor of the freedom that arises from the, this practice is not about having more choices, it's about having less choices. Far fewer choices. And I, I, this can be difficult for us to understand because the freedom that we're peddled um, in, this, in this culture is about having more and more choices. And of course, they have done studies and shown that when people have more and more choices, it usually re- leads more to a quality of paralysis than moving forward in one's life. So when I commit to a spiritual practice, in some ways it's, it's taking choices away. For example, on the ethical level. Again, a, a, a poem by Simon Ve. I'm going to use more of a, some Dharmic language in it. She says, If you do not fight it, if you look, just look steadily upon it, there comes a moment when you cannot do it if it's unwholesome. And if wholesome, a moment when you cannot not. Less choice. Things are more clear about the way to move forward. Another arena that, that sometimes uh, gets confusing in terms of this, this realm of freedom is sometimes we see spiritual freedom is, is about becoming free of uh, cultural conditioning. And, and I think that comes out of this very individualistic uh, quality within, our, within this culture. That I can break free of my culture, and that's what freedom is all about. And, and I really want to point out that that can be very helpful. For example, I'm very grateful for the individualistic quality that is in this country. If it wasn't here, I'd probably still be Catholic. And most of you might still be within the religion that you grew up with, because there would only be one choice. So yeah, there's, there's the downside of that. But another way of seeing what we're doing here is it's not so much becoming free of cultural conditioning, it's rather finding a conditioning that frees us. It's finding a community and creating a culture that leads to freedom. That's what Bo- the Buddha was spending most of his time, was creating a community, actually a culture that led to freedom, and, and was talking about certain conditions that we can cultivate that leads to freedom. And and again, it's not about being monastics or puritanical. It's about being completely free on the inside, but expressing that in a very skillful way on the outside. And and this segues into this next realm, which is the interpersonal realm, of getting in sync with... with, uh, an aspect of our practice that goes beyond just the sense of it being my personal practice. Story about this. This is uh, a story of a monastic by the name of Megiya. And w- one day, Megiya was the attendant of the Buddha. Actually, usually the, the Buddha's attendant was Ananda. And for some reason, on this day, uh, uh, Megiya was chosen as the as the Buddha's attendant. And Megia had gone out for alms round, and on the way back he was uh, he was walking right next to this uh, the Kimikala River, and he saw on, on on the side of the river this beautiful mango grove, really beautiful. And I don't know if you've ever seen a, a mango tree, but they can really provide really wonderful shade. So so Megia is so excited about this, and he has he has the spiritual urgency to practice to go sit underneath one of those mango trees to uh, begin to meditate. So he comes back to the Buddha and he says, I just found the coolest thing, and I am so excited to practice. Uh, Please, would you allow me to go practice? And it's very interesting what the Buddha says. Sometimes when I go back to the early discourses, I'm so amazed by the skill the Buddha had in in terms of teaching and the fluid quality of teaching the particular person that was in front of him. And he says an interesting thing to Megia. He says, Megia, I'm wondering if if you could wait, because if you were to leave, I would be alone. And it would be better if you waited until there were some other monks that could be here to be around me before you leave. Interesting thing to say. Actually, there's nowhere else in the the Pali Canon that I see the Buddha saying this. But he's saying it to Meghia for for some good reason. Of course, Meghia's young and he's excited. He says, But I want to practice. You've already done what needs to be done. I haven't. I need to go practice under the mango tree. And again, the Buddha repeats this. Please, can you wait until somebody's with me? Please don't leave me alone. Wait until some other monks come by. And then a third time, of course, Magia says, please, pretty please. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, on the third time, as many Buddhas do, he says, "Uh, "Magia, please do what you wish. So Magia goes out and he practices underneath the mango tree and lo and behold, as he's sitting there in meditation, as it says, he's assailed by unwholesome thoughts. is having really a tough go of it. So it goes back to the Buddha and he says, you will never believe what just happened <laughs> And I'm sure the Buddha said something like, really? Yeah, what happened? I was I was assailed by all of these thoughts. No kidding. Is that really what happened? And and the Buddha said, yes, magiya, and for this reason the the most the first most important thing when we practice is spiritual friendship is admirable friends that's what's really needed that's what i want you to understand often we think that the heart of this <clears throat> a lot of times is is about going and meditating and the buddha is actually saying something different here he's saying that actually community and friendship needs to be the basis of our spiritual path How can you begin to, to create that or to, to join something like that? To see that being part of community and creating pu- community is an essential aspect of our spiritual path. And there's so many different ways. It could be a local sangha. It could be having a Dharma buddy that you're checking in with or checking in with a teacher every so often or some even using technology of having an online community. I find it... Easier to carry on with my practice also if there's someone I'm accountable to. Have you noticed that? It can be the great thing about having a Dharma buddy. If I'm accountable to somebody, then I can deepen my practice more easily. Also, it opens up the possibility of this quality that I have found very helpful, which is this feeling of giving my practice. That I practice in order to give it to the community. So, So when you go to practice with a group, it's not so much about what you get out of it, it's about actually being there a part, as a part of the community to give your sitting practice to the community. Actually, it gets rid of so many problems because then you don't have to worry if it's a quote-unquote good night or a bad night, if it's a good dharma talk or a bad dharma talk, because you're actually just giving something. And it can be a wonderful, again, story or narrative because it can get out of this thing of what am I getting out of practice? Oh. It doesn't matter what I'm beating out of practice. There's an opportunity to give my practice. That in itself is enough. Again, do you hear how this quality of giving your practice can really tear us out of this small, limited sense of self? It would be so wonderful for for carrying our our practice forward after this retreat. As John Ruskin says, he says, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. (laughs) (laughs) Allowing yourself to get a feeling sense of your practice extending beyond you. And what I'm trying to point out at least first or initially is that this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, quote unquote, do something for it to extend beyond you. Yes, I'll I'll talk in a little while about um, engaging in, in action, but I'm going to invite you to get a broader sense than this, this quality of, oh, I need to do something. And just one story about this. This was a a participant, um, actually, on a retreat that we did, I think one of our New Year retreats. And actually, the first retreat was a New Year retreat with us. And um, a number of years went by, and I was just checking in with this person with their practice. They'd only been practicing maybe, it was maybe only four or five years. And it was so interesting what she reported. She said, yeah, the weirdest thing happened. I, um, I, uh... I'm no longer estranged from my family anymore. We really, there's this great sense of harmony with my family that's never been there before. And, of course, I was like, what's up with that? And she said, I really think it's my practice. That's all I did, is I really engaged in the spiritual path of, even in the meditation of just awareness and acceptance, and somehow that was enough to transform the dynamic. She said what was really important is she didn't have to do anything to change it. It wasn't about going in there and, oh, I have to change the family dynamic. She was being with the family dynamic. She said that was the big change. So you're simply being with it as it is, and then it started to unfold in a radically different way. This spiritual path really has that power to it if we allow it to do, do the work rather than us doing the work. Again, another place for, for faith. Can you have faith in that? Can you allow yourself to cultivate this quality of being with and, and allow that to unfold? Just like the fireflies. I mean, when you go back to the story of the fireflies, I'm sure they're not having some kind of conversation of, look at Larry, let's see if we can get on the same page as Larry there. Huh? What do you think? What do you think, Sally? Does that sound good? probably just kind of happens. They're being with one another, and then synchronicity arises. But it can extend even further our our, our practice, and this is in the in the realm of, of the social and the collective. And I think as we were speaking last night in the Q and A of the importance of reflecting upon this realm of the social and collective. That if we're really interested in non-harming, especially in awakening, it's something that we have to take into account. To see in ourselves as, as a collective being and to see that that's the way the world works. And I'd like to begin from a, a quote from Martin Luther King. I'm sure you've heard it before, and I, I think it bears repeating. And it's from a letter from a Birmingham jail. And, and just to remind you, it's a letter that he wrote to a number of preachers that we're basically saying, please stop with the civil disobedience. You shouldn't be going about this in this way. We disagree with the way you're you're, you're carrying this about. So he has many actually striking um, uh, arguments within the in the letter. But he says, um, I cannot sit I, sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And then, he begin, and then he continues, We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So here, again, the image that he's giving us, very similar to Indra's net. We're all interconnected. What affects one affects the other. And if that's true, it's this it's this call to have this this concern of of the collective on the collective level. <clears throat> so I, I just want to give you one specific practice. This is a, a practice uh, that Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about in terms of of getting clear of of what's our role in terms of the collective dimension. And I think many of you might have felt, as I have, there can be this feeling that there are so many causes out there that it can feel so overwhelming about which one to give uh, our attention to. And again, what can can happen with that is just this quality of, of our energy being scattered. So how do we engage on the social level in a way that can really honor our spiritual path? And and what he suggests is actually a compassion practice, and doing a compassion practice in a very specific way. So you'd sit down and engage in a compassion practice similar to what we've done uh, uh, when we've done it here in the evening. But then to actually do a reflective practice where you bring up certain issues, certain issues It could be um, homelessness or domestic violence, or uh, whatever it is, and, and to bring them up and then to see how it resonates with your heart. And then the one that really moves your heart the most, you make note of. And then you, you go back and do this compression practice actually a number of times so there's a clarity of seeing the issue that come, uh, that is closest to your heart and then, and then finding a clear way to engage within that specific uh, issue, with that specific issue. So again, so that our heart is leading us. So may we get in sync with our spiritual practice in a way that that can uh, allow this retreat to bleed into our daily lives in a way that really does lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for 30 seconds here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.